This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It's a little recap. Matthew opens uh, his book, Matthew, with the first few verses. Remember, he runs through the genealogy. It's the literally the genesis of Jesus. Uh, next, we go see Joseph the Just was the next section, the next story. Uh, and remember, Joseph sought mercy and then received mercy. Uh, he's, he's a very fun contrast with Zechariah from the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Zechariah doubted and God glued his mouth shut. <laughs> Joseph doubted and God was very gentle with him because just before that we saw that he was gentle with Mary. And so we see, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He's living the Sermon on the Mount before the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, then Matthew finishes chapter 1 by announcing that Jesus was born. I love that. It just is one little verse, and Jesus was born. <laughs> and then Matthew, uh, and then next chapter 2, the wise men seek to worship Jesus, uh, and Herod is interested. So let's let's get a running start in our text today. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, greatly perplexed, and all Jerusalem with him. So what really important is all of Jerusalem is in unison with this evil figure named Herod. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and now all of the clergy is with Herod and the people. And all Jerusalem, uh, uh, all the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Uh, Handel's Messiah has a great verse, uh, song on that, by the way. Uh, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar. Uh, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had, had seen when it rose went before them. Again, I think this is the, the pillar of fire from the wilderness, the glory cloud, uh, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's talk for a bit about King Herod. Uh, so I think one of the things we have to understand is when we read the Bible, it wasn't written in the year 2022. There's a context in which it is written. There's wars going on. There's strife going on. There's uh, economic situations. Well, uh, there, there's a theologian named Kenneth Bailey, and he, he neatly organizes Herod and just how complex he was. He says, racially, 
Herod was an Arab. His father was from an Arab tribe of the southern part of the Holy Land. His mother was from Petra, which was the capital of the uh, Nabetean kingdom, an Arab kingdom that inhabited the northern part of Arabia in the first century. So uh, racially, he's Arab. Religiously, Herod's Jewish. In 136 BC, his homeland was captured by Jewish rulers, and they had a convert or die policy. And so his whole family converted to Judaism. Culturally, Herod was Greek. Greek, uh, Greek uh, was Herod's first language, and Herod was noted for various attempts of turning Jerusalem into a Greek city, uh, which this was a big climate in the first century. And, and of course, just before BC, Israel was turning Greek and Roman, and the Pharisees got really worried because they were losing their young men and their young daughters to Roman thinking, Greek life. And so they ended up creating all of these laws and hedge laws and Sabbath laws to preserve their young people from falling into what they would consider secularism. Uh, and so Herod was really big into trying to turn Jerusalem into a Greek city. Politically, Herod was Roman. All of the major conflicts during his tenure in power, he sided with Rome. So He's racially Arab, he's religiously Jewish, he's culturally Greek, and he's politically Roman. This is a very complex person. And it kind of is a little bit, doesn't give a little window into just the melting pot that is Israel at this time. That's one of the things I like about that show, The Chosen. You see all these different kinds of people in a, lot, in a very large way. That's very accurate. It was a melting pot of cultures. Uh, in, Her in his earlier days, um, you know, you see a lot about Herod as a, as a lunatic, but he was a very capable man. There, there's, there's accounts where he led his men into battle on 10 different occasions. He, he led armies into war. So he was, he was a war hero. He was revered amongst the people. Uh, there's also a really interesting story uh, of his wisdom. And Bailey notes again, one of the high points of his nobility was when he sided with Anthony and Cleopatra against Octavian in the struggles for control over the Roman Empire. After Octavian won and became a new Caesar, Herod realized he messed up. He backed the wrong horse, so to speak. So Herod made his way to Rhodes, where Octavian was, and he asked for an audience with the king, the new king, the king he betted against. And when he appeared before Octavian, it says he came without his crown, which normally he would have had a crown. He was a ruler of a particular district. And he stood before Octavian and he said everything that he did to oppose Octavian. He said, I gave him this amount of money, this amount of troops, this amount of cattle. We raised this amount of finances. We flew these kind of banners. He, ran, he put all his dirty laundry on the table. And then he said something that was really interesting. He said, what I ask you to consider is not whose friend I was, but what kind of friend I was. And what he was saying is, I was a loyal friend to the end of Herod and or, or, or of Cleopatra. Um, and if you would keep me in my position of power, I'll be the same kind of friend to you. And Octavian was so taken back at his wisdom, he actually gave him more power <laughs> and allowed him to rule with an even greater authority. So, so the, the point is, is when we come into this picture of Herod, he had absolute control 
over the entire region. His word was gospel when it came to Israel and its surrounding territories. Now, as the story of Herod continues, eventually with time, that power became very intoxicating, uh, and he slowly lost his mind. So, for example, he had ten wives, and every so often he would view one of his... uh, he, uh, he, he, every so often he would view one of his kids as a political threat and then kill them. Uh, he strangled his two favorite sons in Samaria because he was suspicious of them. His favorite wife, he got suspicious that she was plotting against him, and he had her executed. And the story goes that he missed her so much afterwards, he would walk up and down the palace hall screaming for her. And when he couldn't find her, he'd call for servants, you need to go find my wife. Well, they knew she wasn't around. You killed her, Herod. And when they would come back, he would have them beaten for not finding her. Um, his last order, this is crazy. His, his last order that we have recorded, he, he wanted all of his soldiers to gather thousands of important citizens from all over his region. Bakers, tradesmen, craftsmen, uh, uh, key politicians, musicians, artists, painters. He wanted them all gathered in the, um, what's it called, the stadium in Jericho. And upon the news of his death, he wanted them all brutally murdered. So the entire land of Israel and Judea would go into a time of mourning when the king died. Because he knew no one was going to cry for him. But I know. (laughs) So, you know, but again, if you think about it, this is all narcissists. The thought of no one mourning their death was was a more imaginable horror than killing thousands of innocent people. Um, and, and the good news is when the guards found out that um, Herod died, they just released all the prisoners because they're like, oh, thank God that guy's dead. <laughs> I bring this up to bring into our awareness of the brutality and the viciousness and instability of this man who's trying to pursue and kill this child, this Jesus Christ. Uh, He's every bit as vicious and vile as the Pharaoh of old who drowned thousands of Hebrew children in the Nile River in Exodus chapter one. So today, very, very vividly and clearly, we're being introduced to what has become of Israel. Remember, we saw that all of Israel's on this guy's side. So Israel has become this great force of evil. We see the leader of Israel has become this madman. And we see the religious system has backed him. So we're we're seeing what has become of God's people. Matthew's introducing us to a really horrible situation. Now, as we jump in, remember, Matthew has been writing his gospel in a way that he's retelling the story of Israel, but through the life of Jesus. So in the opening of Matthew, Matthew shows us that Jesus was the plan all the way back at the book of Genesis. And remember, what does the genealogy start with? Abraham. So we start with Father Abraham, the many sons, and we go through Father Abraham's kids. I always think of you when I hear that song, <laughs> singing it to me as a little kid. <laughs> and, then, and then next again, remember we already went through this, was Joseph, Jesus' father. But just like the Joseph from Genesis and the Joseph of Jesus' life, they're both dreamers. They both have dreams from God and act on their dreams. So Jesus comes from a new type of Joseph and his father Joseph. Then chapter 2 moves us from the book of Genesis to the Exodus. In the first half of chapter 2, Herod is portrayed as a type of Pharaoh who's seeking to kill 
God's children. Uh, and then in the back half of chapter 2, today's text, we're going to want to look for, for the next phase of the story of Exodus, and that's Moses' flight from Egypt and his call back to Egypt. So, so we're going to want to be on the lookout for what Matthew is building upon in the story of Jesus. Um, so verse 13, now when they had departed, so when the Magi left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream uh, and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So clearly, I love this, God is fully aware of the schemes of evil people. You know, right now, I think we see in our culture lots of evil schemes being prodded and brought to fruition and attempted. And, and Jesus is telling us here, clear as day, God is not surprised by any of this. He is fully aware of what evil is intending to do. And so often, like in this story, he thwarts their plans, which, praise God. Uh, verse 14 so powerful. And he rose, Joseph, and, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Uh, we're going to pause for a minute here. First, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are all sleeping, and the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in his dreams. And the angel gives him a command from God, rise. And as soon as Joseph wake, wakes up, it says he rises. It's the same exact word, and they depart at night. Joseph is a just man who obeys God. And notice what it doesn't say. He, did, he didn't wait until morning. He didn't pour himself a cup of coffee and brush his teeth and then hit the road. He immediately left, it says, in the dead of night. And something we need to see here is that when God brings us a message that we need to respond to, there's an urgency that has to happen. You know, I tell my wife all the time, you ever have the Lord lay someone on your heart? Just out of the blue. I tell her all the time, don't wait. You stop what you're doing, call that person, text that person, pray for that person, do what you have to do. You know, we, we, Because so many times I can tell you within my life, God has me praying for someone at the very minute they're dealing with something. Or I call someone as it's all falling apart. God does this all the time. And so there is an urgency to God's prompting in our life that we have to be aware of. And remember, Jesus isn't isn't a neighbor knocking on our door for a cup of sugar. He's God Almighty. And when he says, hey, check in on, you know, Paul, I better check in on Paul. The king's telling me to do it now. Uh, Jesus teaches this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're at the temple, you're bringing your, 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 your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. It says remember. Doesn't say, and an angel of the Lord comes, remember, then leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. One of the ways that I think we can deceive ourselves is to think, well, if God showed up to me and gave me a message, I definitely would listen. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, sometimes God brings things to our memory. He puts someone's name in our head. He puts someone's hurt in, in, in our remembrance, and we're to go. We're, I mean, he's talking about being in the middle of church and going, I got to go, <laughs> and going to minister to somebody. And so, again, I, I think there is 
We have to understand that when God is bringing something to us, there has to be, if he says rise, we need to rise. <laughs> and if, and, if, and if, we need to be godly and respond when God calls upon us. Because, yeah, anyways, I'll keep moving. Secondly, the angel gives Joseph the command to rise and take the child and mother. That Greek word for take means to either receive or most likely in this context to take with or take charge of. Now imagine you're a father and your son is God. <laughs> the angel just told him, take charge of God, essentially. Take charge of Mary. You know, it, it, it hits me so hard because God, God has clearly defined with it. I was talking to a woman today cutting my hair about women preachers. And I said, look, I don't invent these rules. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And, and one of the reasons of things I got into is I said, men and women are not, one's not better than the other, but we're created differently. We're not to pretend we're not different. God has designed us for different functions. And one of the things that that plays into thinking about today's message is God has plainly designed uh, from the beginning what a family is and how a family is to be structured. And here God is calling on Joseph to lead his family. Uh, the other, and think, I just keep thinking about the other two people in his family is Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And yet the angel fascinatingly brings God's message to lead to the father, to the father of this household. Joseph, lead your family. And it's such an interesting note here is, is God has a specific word to Joseph. And notice the word is not rise, take Jesus and Mary. What does it say? Take the child and his mother. He's calling on the husbandly, fatherly duty of the, of the man of the house to take charge and lead his family. It's like even in this incredible dynamic that your kid is God, <laughs> God still honors the nuclear family in this that I have designed a husband to lead. And Joseph, I have placed my only begotten son under you, and you need to be the father of the household and lead him while he's a little kid. And so here I think we see that God is honoring and, and has clearly designed how a father is to lead his household. And it's not broken even under the most incredible circumstances that this word comes to him. And I think that's a really important no, it's a little fraction here, but I think it's really important for fathers. Uh, verse 13 through 15. Um, now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Uh, so pause. Here it is plain as day. Matthew quotes out of Hosea 11, chapter 11, verse 1. The quote is, out of Egypt, I call my son. But isn't it interesting? Matthew isn't, or, or Matthew isn't writing Jesus coming out of Egypt. Now, is he? He's writing about Jesus coming out of Israel. <laughs> Matthew, G, Matthew is writing about Jesus going into Egypt, yet he gives, us, gives the quotation about coming out of Egypt. 
And so the question is why? And the point is, Matthew is showing us the full degradation of Israel. It is ruled by a new Pharaoh like a new Egypt. And so God is calling his people out of a new tyranny is what's being, as Matthew applies this quotation here from Hosea. Uh, and again, if you've been following this study in Matthew, you'll notice I put a lot of time and, and emphasis on the Old Testament parallels. And here's one of the reason why, because if God is really showing us that Jesus is a new type of Moses, then we should expect the ministry of Moses to follow suit, right? And that is that a new exodus is coming. Jesus is going to have, have to, like Moses did, come and, and oppose this new Pharaoh, this new Egypt, and is going to bring a new people out of Egypt. And so the point is, Matthew's writing this birth announcement in such a way to tell us that a new Moses is being brought up and a new exodus has to come. But the inverse of the story is, Egypt is not Egypt anymore. Egypt's become the place of refuge, and Israel's become the place of bondage. Israel is the new Egypt, and its leader is the new Pharaoh. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. That makes a little more sense now knowing how nuts he is, doesn't it? He became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to that time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Have you ever heard the term, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet and crack a few? That's what he's doing here. He, he's willing to kill dozens, if not hundreds of children to kill one political opponent who's a baby. Uh, and isn't it interesting that Herod, Herod's not gunning for Jesus, who's some rogue politician or some rebel warrior. He's a child. <laughs> he's a little baby. Jesus is going to be absolutely no threat to him in any capacity for 20 or 30 years. But Herod, I think this is really revealing something about, about himself. He's killing this child because of his legacy. He's killing this child because if, he, if he's still ruling in 30 years, um, this doesn't jive with him. Even if he lives another 30 years, a threat to Herod in 30 years is a threat to Herod today. And so he orders the death of these Hebrew children. Even if he thinks he's going to die in 15 years because of his age, this is going to be a threat to his legacy, his heir apparent. This is someone who is willing to do burn the whole world down to preserve this graven image that is himself. And he's willing to strangle his boys, kill his wives, throw children, dash them, kill them as best as he can. This is, this is the path of evil here. And then verse 17, then was, fulfilled, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When you read that at first, you go, what does that have to do? <laughs> with this story. Yet when you study Jeremiah 31, it's another passage about the Exodus. Well, if you kept reading, if you kept reading in, in Jeremiah 31, 
you come to understand that her comfort comes when they when her children are brought out of Babylon. And of course, Babylon was a new type of Egypt. It was a new bondage. So again, all of the scripture, all of these stories, Matthew is recording all of these things for us to tell us how bad things have gotten and where things are going. A new Moses is coming, a new Exodus is coming, and things will get better. Rachel, or Rachel, who's mourning here, will be comforted when the Exodus comes. And so, again, everything's pointing to who this Christ is going to be. And then verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother again. Joseph, lead your family. And go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of uh, Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Notice, Notice that his fatherly instinct was in line with God's order to him. He was worried about southern Israel. And then the angel comes to him and says, you're right, go north. Again, God's almost encouraging him in leading his family. And he, he doesn't want to go, um, as, as, as history tells, when Herod died, his, his kingdom, <laughs> surprise, surprise, it split in half. His legacy was not preserved almost immediately because crazy people's legacies never are intact when they die. Um, the southern kingdom, um, which is Jerusalem, Bethlehem, it just wasn't safe. And so Joseph took his family to the northern part of Israel, to around Galilee, which is in Nazareth. Verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, really interesting. Nowhere in the Old Testament is Jesus called a Nazarene. He wasn't a Nazarite. He didn't hold a Nazarite vow. So a lot of people are really confused by this passage. But what Matthew's doing is he's doing a play, he's doing a play on words here. Um, what Matthew seems to be drawing from, uh, drawing on is, is how there are many prophecies in the Old Testament, specifically the prophets, where the coming Messiah, we see this in Isaiah 11, uh, verse 1, Isaiah 11, 14, 19, uh, Isaiah 60, 21, Daniel 11, verse 7, where the Messiah was called the branch. That Hebrew word for branch is netzer. Uh, and so Matthew seems to be making the connection from this word and sees that even Jesus' hometown in Nazareth was alluded to in the scriptures uh, in the prophecy of the Messiah being the branch, the netzer, as he lives in Nazareth. <laughs> so... There, he seems to be going, ha, it was hinted to, I knew it. So Matthew seems to be excited here. Uh, and then the end of the story um, <laughs> is very similar to a passage in Exodus 4. Uh, I want to read this to you. And Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, which in Matthew would be Israel. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Herod has died. So Moses took his wife and his sons. Isn't this the exact same thing we just read? I mean, Matthew was almost paralleling it with this uh, Exodus 4 um, period here. 
uh, and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. So Matthew was showing us that Jesus, like Moses, was coming back into Egypt to do the Lord's will. Now, again, it seems to me that this passage of Scripture is telling us something very clearly. A new exodus is coming. A new Moses is here to, to free God's people out of a new land of tyranny. And unfortunately, that land is now Israel. And God's people got to get out. Um, and we're done our reading. Uh, a brief, brief note here. And today's a little bit more about Bible study work than it is about application, but I got something good, I think. Uh, what I think's good for us to see here, apart from how Matthew is introducing us to Jesus as being the one to bring about a new exodus because he's a new Moses, is the relentlessness of men like Herod. I've shared this story before, but <clears throat> I remember being a kid, talking to my dad, because when I was a kid, our, our church had so many problems. I mean, people fought constantly. There were, I think, four church splits at some point. I've lost and made so many new rounds of friends in my childhood. And I remember telling my dad at one point, I said, Dad, when I'm in charge one day, I'm just going to love everybody. <laughs> and he said, son, some people won't let you. And the reality is there, there are people that just want war, and there's nothing you can do about it. They will fight, fight, fight. They will claw all to preserve their legacy or their pretend made-up version. Have you ever talked to somebody and you can tell the way they think about themselves is completely contrary to reality? <laughs> and here's, here's Herod. He has this idea of Herod the Conqueror. And the second he dies, his whole, his whole kingdom falls apart. It was all a mirage, but this is evil. This has always been evil. So they will kill. They will hurt. They will steal. They will commit horrible atrocities. And you can't reason with people like that. And, 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 and they will burn the whole world to the ground if it benefits them in any way. But what's so cool about this story to me is that even with a world occupied by men like Herod, God is greater. <laughs> He's not fooled by any of this craziness. You ever deal with someone so difficult that you start to get mixed up? Like, you're like, wait, wait a second. Wait, you know, and then you get a little involved. You ever see cartoons and there's a little tornado and there's just feet and kicks? Your head can get there sometimes when you're dealing with manipulators. But God stays fixed. He knew exactly what Herod was going to do. He knew his tricks. He knew his secrets. And he wasn't surprised. And in every single instance in today's story, Herod is outsmarted. And he slowly becomes more and more frustrated as the story goes on. And in verse 16 of today's passage, I love it. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. I don't know why. I love that verse. Uh, that word tricked there, he realized, he saw that he had been tricked in the Greek and almost, maybe even more so, mean mocked. He felt as if he had been mocked. Mocked? Oh, that's great. He felt mocked. Uh, and, and listen, someone who thinks highly of themselves, the worst thing that could happen imaginable is they feel mocked or laughed at. 
uh, and he feels mocked. His authority was derided before the authority of this baby, and he just gets furious. But what's great is already Herod's greatest fears are coming true. Why is he killing this baby? Why does he want to kill this baby? Because he's a political threat. Who did the kings of the east, the magi, what, they, were, they were leaders from a foreign land. They're already choosing Jesus as a greater political ally. His greatest fear's already happening, and Jesus is one. They're already siding with the greater king over Israel. And so already Herod recognizes that this is a legitimate political threat to his rule. It's already begun. And so Herod, it says he became furious. He freaks out that Greek word there. I've never seen a Greek word like it. It means both great and angry anger. I don't know how that works, but great angry anger. (laughs) And in a sense, I think it's Matthew's way of saying he totally lost it. He just blew his stack. I mean, tear apart the palace, blew, blew his stack. And I, I was thinking about this because Matthew is already doing this for us. He's already making Pharaoh, I mean, uh, Herod, a type, isn't he? A type of evil in, in Pharaoh. He's already showing us he's a type of the evil that is Pharaoh. Who was a Pharaoh a type for? Satan. So in a sense, it's, it's, not, it's not a great theological leap to say this is a model for Satan here. And what, what I think is this must be such a picture of Satan. All day long, he's trying to kill God's child. He's, he's, he's trying to kill the church. And day in and day out, God mocks him and tricks him and bests him. And he must be greater, great angry all the time. Uh you know, all day long he schemes and he puts, and here's the thing, Genesis 3 introduces us to, he was, he was the craftiest creature in all the garden. He's a lot smarter than us. And yet all day long he can move us like pawns, and yet God, God gives dreams, God gives clues, God gives help. And all day long God outsmarts him in every step of the way. And of course, as we read Matthew's gospel, this, this climax is in what Martin Luther would call the devil's mousetrap and the cross. Remember, it was at the cross that Satan thought he was getting a piece of cheese. I get to kill God. I finally kill the child. And what ended up happening? <laughs> the child ended up living and the serpent lost his own head. Uh, remember in Genesis chapter 3, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan may have caused Jesus physical pain, but he rose again in three days. Satan lost everything. That was, it is at the cross that Satan was most profoundly mocked. <laughs> He was made a laughing stock of. He, again, as Luther says, is the devil's mousetrap. Uh, and, and here, it, what, what's so sad about today's passage is by the time we finish Matthew's gospel, we'll see that Herod is a picture for Satan. And we'll see that, that his successors are pictures of Satan. And all of Jerusalem agrees with him. Remember when Jesus is before trial and they all chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Herod here, the king of Jerusalem, becomes a type of Satan. And then we, we, we see, of course, the other leaders in Israel at this time. And all of Israel 
rallies behind this man of sin. And like Satan, he, he thought... He thought he had secured the demise of God. Didn't Herod, when he sent the wise men, didn't, you know he thought he was being smart. You know he thought the wise men are going to come back. They're going to tell me where Jesus is. I'm going to get a whole bunch of gifts there and kill the kid. He probably thought he was so brilliant. But the only thing he secured was his own judgment. Herod very quickly is going to die as someone who just tried to kill God Almighty on judgment day. And because the child lives, because Jesus lives, the exodus is coming. And, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus now has been set up like a new Moses. He has had to flee Egypt. He has had to return to Egypt. And in, in that he has fled Israel, he has come from Israel. He was threatened like little baby Moses placed in the little basket. So Jesus was whisked away to safety. And and. Jesus now has been propped up as a type of, of, of Moses about the, and, and these Old Testament allusions are building to this. And what we're going to see is that there's going to be an exodus in two parts. Jesus almost immediately is coming to take people out of bad religion. <laughs> He's getting people in exodus out of bad church. And I, I, I was, this lady was cutting my hair today. She just piercings, she's just cutting my hair today and she grew up in the church. She, she, she was involved in youth ministry. She attended three services uh, to help out with the children. And at some point, she just got burnt out. She said people were mean and cruel to her. And she got out. You know, and I got a chance. She started to, like, cry cutting my hair. And selfishly, I'm like, please don't chop my head up. <laughs> 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 I don't have much left, please. But, <laughs> but I told her, I said, you never see Jesus yelling at prostitutes. You only see him yelling at bad religion, at smart people in fancy robes. And when we see Jesus come, he is going to seem so angry at Pharaoh's magicians, at this fake religious system, the scribes and the Pharisees. And slowly, what does Jesus do? Where do the people meet Jesus as we continue our story? Out in the wilderness. He's calling the outcast of Israel out of Egypt. And then eventually, of course, the book ends with Jesus dying. And then that leads to the second, the greater exodus, where Jesus calls us out of this world <laughs> as we cross through the firmaments of the water and stand before God Almighty in glory. And so cool. Isn't that so cool? I know! So we're, we're building. Matthew is painting this picture of this glorious exodus that not only happened, but has to happen. Because God cannot suffer evil in his house. Judgment starts at the household of God. And that temple has become a pagan shrine. And he says, if you had enough faith, you can say to that mountain, which where the temple sat, it'd be uprooted and thrown into the sea. At some point, Jesus says, I'm getting my people out of here. And slowly he's going to do that. So anyways, that's our, that's our story here. Thanks for joining us for Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you've just been blessed by today's teaching and want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. 
To donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study Podcast.